1: Christmas Eve completes the season of Advent, and to complete Advent, we light the final candle, a white candle that sits in the middle of the wreath. This fifth candle represents what every other candle has anticipated the coming of Christ. There was much about the arrival of Jesus that makes his birth noteworthy. Born of a virgin, laid in a manger, Announced by angels and arriving in the city of David, called Bethlehem, according to prophecy. But what truly separates the arrival of Jesus is the cross and empty tomb. For Jesus was the Christ, the long awaited Messiah, God the Son, who humbled himself not only by taking on human flesh, but dying on the cross in order to take upon himself the penalty for our sin. This selfless act of humbling himself brings us into a right relationship with God by grace through faith. So we do not light this candle simply because a baby was born. We light this candle knowing this baby grew to be a sinless man who died in the sinner's place because he was the light of the world who came to take away our spiritual darkness.
0: Colossians 1, through 20. He, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in the in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and by him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the first, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him the reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.
2: Let us pray. Dear Father, we are so humbled, Lord, by your presence. We are so humbled, Lord, by your amazing gift. That while we were still sinners, that while we were still actively at war with you, Lord, you chose to send your only son to us to be born in the most humble of circumstances in a manger and to die for our sins, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for your undying commitment to us. Thank you for transforming our hearts, Lord through the blood of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for all your blessings, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: Christmas Welcome, everyone, kids. It is absolutely fantastic to have you with us. I just love it whenever you get to join us. Are you guys ready for presents? How many of you have already gotten to open the presents? Oh, okay, quite a few. All right? How many of you have to wait until tomorrow? Okay, a few hands up. Uh, all right if i 've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And For the last four weeks, we've been in this season of Advent, and we've been doing a series called Seek. Uh, Through it, we've been looking at different biblical characters in the Christmas story and seeing what it is that they had, what it is that they sought in the midst of the difficulties of life. Uh, In week one, we looked at Mary and Joseph, and we discovered that they had an incredible peace and contentment despite some incredibly difficult circumstances that they found themselves in. In week two, we saw the shepherds who were the outcasts of their society, and yet they had found meaning through the invitation that God gave them to meet the Christ child. Then in week three, we looked at the magi, the wise men. We saw that they had great knowledge through years of study, but they didn't just know a lot. They allowed that knowledge to be applied. It's what led them when they saw the star to travel so far in order to meet the Christ child. In other words, they, dis- they displayed wisdom. And then last week, we looked at the story of Simeon. His story occurred eight days after the birth of Jesus. And we saw he had been waiting a long, long time to meet the Messiah. And yet, even in the midst of his waiting, in the midst of his darkness, he still had hope. And we saw what we can do to continue to have hope in our darkness. And so tonight, I just want to kind of wrap things up and and I want to show you that just as the angels invited the shepherds to come and seek the Christ child, and just as a star beckoned the wise men to travel from afar to see this newborn king, I'm hoping that tonight I will get the chance to invite you to seek Jesus. Because I believe that it is in Jesus you find that contentment, that um, meaning, that wisdom, and that hope. And we see this all wrapped up in one Bible verse. If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, it contains a chapter, chapter 11, which has a nickname. It's called the Hall of Faith. And Just like a college or a professional sports league has a Hall of Fame, the author of Hebrews kind of enshrines some people into this Hall of Faith. But rather than laud them for their accomplishments on the playing field, the author lauds them for their incredible faith in God. But why was faith so incredibly important to the author? Like, why did he take an entire chapter just to talk about this topic? Like, why did he enshrine 16 people by name and then even more people just in general practice? Well, he kind of tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 6. This is why faith is so important to him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. God. Uh, For decades now, surveys have been showing that most Americans believe that there is a God. Now, some people who do believe there is a God, they would be what are considered deists. They believe there is a God, but once he started everything, he just kind of took a step back and let everything go. Some people call this the watchmaker theory. Like a watchmaker, God started everything, but just like a watchmaker doesn't have to keep active to keep the watch going, God has stepped back and just has let everything run its natural course. But there's a majority of people who say they believe there is a God. But if you ask them, is this God still active in life today? They would say, yes. Now, I believe that most people who would say yes, that God is active, have this innate desire to please this God. And I would argue that even the worst of sinners still have a desire to please God. You see... The worst of sinners, you take whatever our culture says is bad, murder, thievery, uh, adultery, uh, like, like just whatever might be considered the worst. People who've done those things, they would say, well, yeah, I believe there's a God, but he could never love someone like me. They, they realize that if this, there is a God, he's perfect and holy, and they fall woefully short of his standard. And yet, them expressing that would indicate, I wish I could please God. I wish I would have done my life differently. But I screwed up, and there's no way he could love me. Now, there's some good news for those people. That, that is that everyone falls short. Whether it's the worst of sinners or that goody two-shoes who drives you nuts at school. Like, everyone Romans 3.23 says that all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that's good news because the author of Hebrews 11.6 does not say without good works it is impossible to please God. He says it is without faith. You see, there's a big difference. See, when you think it's about your good works, you think it's all about you. But faith is not about you Faith is about the person or the object you put your faith in. For instance, for those of you who are here in person, when you walked in, you put your faith in that chair. You sat down in it, you put all of your weight trusting that it would hold you. Now, if you had walked in and you had really weak faith, you walked in and you looked at the chair and, you're like, "Ooh, they're folding chairs. Ah, I don't know about this." Oh, See, you can have little faith, but the chair held you. It isn't about you. Faith is about the object or the person. And so it doesn't matter what you have done. You can still come to God. And so you don't have to clean up your act to come to God. You don't have to muster up a certain amount of faith to come to God. You just come. And you put your faith in him. And when you do so... You please God. Now, some people they want to know, okay, what does this faith look like? Well, I think the author anticipated that question because he actually shows us two steps, two things we can do to put faith in God to please Him. the The first one is sound, found in that second phrase. For whoever would draw near to God, must believe that He exists. Now, that kind of seems obvious, doesn't it? Like, if you're going to put faith in, in God, he kind of needs to be real. I mean, just a moment ago, I talked about you putting your faith in your chair. Kids, I want you to look at my chair. Look, look, look at this chair. Isn't this chair gorgeous? I mean, this is the, a beautiful chair. I mean, it, it, like, you guys, your, your chairs are all right. They're fine. They're padded. Mine is like a real church chair. All right, it's not a folding chair. Like This thing is legit. This is expensive. My chair is awesome. Now, I'm going to sit down in my chair. All right, I'm going to show you my faith. Now, I already have someone applauding me sitting in this chair because clearly he does not appreciate my body. He wants to see me harmed. He wants to see my reputation ruined. And he's hoping that I go viral on video as this is now being streamed online because he knows there's no chair here. As I said, your faith isn't about you. I can have all the faith in the world that my imaginary chair will hold me. But faith is about the object. And if there's nothing there, then I'm going to embarrass myself. See, a lot of atheists would look at me and call me a fool for believing in a God that we can't see. To them, he's the equivalent of an imaginary chair. And yet, just as you can't see the wind... You can see its effects. I mean, just last week, we, we had the second derecho in 16 months in the state of Iowa. I mean, my, my neighbors lost their shed. I couldn't see the wind, but I saw the effects. Likewise, I have never seen God, and yet I have seen the effects. There's way too much to convince me that God is just an imaginary chair. I have seen too much. I've learned too much. I know God is real, and I can sit down on him. I can put my faith in him because he exists. But you see, you can't just say you believe there's a God. You can't just say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have faith. The book of James in chapter 2, the author of James argues that you cannot display your faith in words only. That you must show your faith through action, through what you do. There's a bunch of people in our world who would say, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. But if you were to look at their daily lives, you, you would not see faith in God. You'd see faith in a bank account. Or you'd see faith in like certain friends or, or certain relationships. You'd you'd say that their faith is in their stuff, or most likely for most of us, our faith is in ourselves. If you're going to have faith in God, there must be action behind it. And that's the second part that the author gets to in verse 6. Phrase 3 of verse 6 is our second step. It is that he, God, rewards those who seek him. Now, most people, when they see that phrase they jump on the word reward. Everyone likes a reward, right? I and mean, kids, you know what a reward is. It, the dictionary defines a reward as a thing given in recognition of one's service, effort, or achievement. And so, if you, say, are a wrestler, and you go to a wrestling tournament, or maybe you're on the swim team, and you participate in the event, and you win, your reward is a trophy or a medal, Or maybe you've worked the same job for 40 years and you did an amazing job in your career. And so your reward is maybe a bonus of money. Or maybe they put a plaque up on the wall to recognize you and all that you did. Or if you're really, really wealthy and you give a large donation to a college or university, they might reward you by putting your name on a building or putting a scholarship in your name. You receive some sort of reward. So when people hear that God gives rewards, whoa, God could probably give some amazing rewards. Like God could give me a new car or a bigger house. Maybe God could give me a spouse or some friends. Maybe God would give me health. Maybe God would just give me some new clothes. Like God could give me all sorts of rewards. I believe that God could give you those things. But I don't think that's the type of reward that the author is talking about here. I think he has something totally different in mind. So it makes you wonder, okay, so what rewards does God give? Well, to understand that, let's first look at who receives the reward. All right, Look at it again. It says that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, those who put their faith into action. They seek after him. When you seek him you receive a reward. Now, think about the rewards that I talked about just a little bit ago. If you're a wrestler and you win the tournament, they don't give you a tennis award. If you worked your entire career as an engineer, they don't give you a reward as college president. Your reward is tied to what you do. And so... If the person who receives the word is the person who seeks him, the reward for those who seek God is God. When you seek after God, you get his presence, you get his grace, you get his love, you get his power. The the scriptures talk about someone when they put their faith in God, they receive the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God himself comes to live with you, to be in you, to dwell with you. And through the Holy Spirit, you begin to receive the reward of contentment, meaning, wisdom, and, excuse me, uh, 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 discernment and hope. You get to receive all of these things. Now, it's not a magic cure. It's not like, well, oh, if I just put my faith in God, then everything's magically done. No, God is slowly working in you to mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus. And a part of that is giving you contentment. Part of that is working in you to give you wisdom. Part of that is working to help you find your meaning in life. It won't be instantly, but it's possible. It's there. And when you seek him continually, daily, you begin to get these rewards. So tonight, the greatest gift I could give you is not just some nice memories. Tonight, if, even if I was super wealthy, the greatest gift I could give you wouldn't be a million dollars to each of you. But that would be fun. I'd love to do that. No, the greatest gift that I could give you tonight is Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians ...calls Jesus and his gospel an indescribable gift. Some translations put it as an inexpressible gift... In other words, when you realize that there is a triune God who really exists, that God the Son took on human flesh, went and lived the only sinless life to have ever been lived, but yet went and died on a cross in the sinner's place and rose again from the dead so that you could come into a relationship with your heavenly Father and all of your sin could be washed away and forgiven, that is such an indescribable gift. You can't describe it. It is so inexpressible, you can't find the words to get it out. Like, it is so mind-blowing, and yet it's real. This gospel is not an imaginary chair. This gospel has been changing lives throughout history and throughout cultures. And that is why tonight I offer it to you. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, whether you're here in person or you're online, would you accept the gift of Jesus? Would you allow him to come into your life? You do not have to clean your act up. You do not have to get certain things in order. You just simply come. You put your faith, you put your trust as meager as it is in him. And when you do so, you please him. And he delights to come to you and surround you, to be in you through his Holy Spirit, and to now walk with you, helping you begin to discover the path to true contentment, to true meaning, to true wisdom, and to true hope. So if you're here tonight and you're simply looking for some contentment in the middle of the chaos, seek Jesus. If you've been looking for some meaning in the maddening loneliness of our world, seek Jesus. If you've been longing for some sort of hope in the midst of your darkness, seek Jesus because he is the gift God has given to you. Would you accept him and let him change your life? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help anyone now, whether they have never made a, a, a confession of faith in you or, or they made one long ago as a child or, or whenever, that right now, no matter how long uh, they've been walking with you wherever they're at in their spiritual journey, that right now you would draw them to you and they would seek you. That we would be people who would put our faith in you. And by doing so, it pleases you to then come and dwell, not just with us as humans, but even in us. So that your Holy Spirit is leading us in this life. So that we can go and be that blessing to the world. Helping to bring them contentment and meaning and wisdom and hope. So Father, help us to come. To come not because we've got it all together. To not come because we're somehow impressive. But to simply come. Because you, Jesus, have already come to us. And so now you invite us to seek you to cling to you, to put our faith solely upon you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.